Welcome to this week's Rashi Shear, brought to you from the Bet Midrash of Mizrahi in Melbourne, Australia. So, good evening, and we are still in the story of Yaakov and Rachel and Leah and their children and their um, surrogate pregnancies, and that's exactly where we're up to right now. Perak Lamad Pasuk Zayin. Uh, so last week we had Pasuk Vav, which was, or Pasuk Hay and Vav, which was the uh, birth of the child called Dan, who was born to Bilha, the servant of Rachel. And the story continues in Pasuk Zayin. V'tahar od, v'teled Bilha shivchat Rachel, and she conceived again, and Bilha, the servant of Rachel, bore Ben Sheni Liyakov, another a second son to Yaakov. So after Dan, there was a second one. And we come down to Pasuk Chet. V'tomer Rachel, and Rachel said, Naftule Elokim Niftalti. So we don't know what that means, and Rashi's going to try and lead us through this, and hopefully not to complicate things too much, but we'll see. Um, Im achoti. So I've done some uh, naftule and niftalti with my sister. Vegam yochalti, and also I was able. Vetikra shemo naftali, and therefore I'm adding in the word therefore, but because of this naftule, she called him naftali, and that's how we get the child called the son called naftali. So Rashi um, says three different explanations, <clears throat> and there's further problems with this Rashi. Not only is it complicated, but there are different girsaot, there are different textual variants um, to make things a little bit trickier as we go along. But let's see how we go. So he starts by quoting Menachem ben Saruk, who was a 10th century philologist, one of the first to compile um, a dictionary of classical Hebrew, which he called his Machberet. So Menachem ben Saruk Pershu Machberet Tzamid Patil. He compared it, this word Naftuli, to the word Tzamid Patil, uh, which means a sealed covering. Um, and that occurs in Bamidbar Perik Yutet Pasuk Tet Vav, in the laws of Tumantara. If a vessel is sealed, tightly sealed, um, then it uh, doesn't, the things inside it do not contract tumor impurity from the things around it. Um, but it's a tight seal, it's a tight connection between the lid and the, and the container. That's what samid patil means. So that means in this pasuk, chiborim me'et hamakom. So I had bonds from Hashem, bonds as in connections, from Hashem, nitchabarti im achoti, so I joined together with my sister, lizkot labanim, to merit children. So naftuli elokim niftauti im achoti. I, they both mean joined together, so I had joinings from Hashem, in other words Hashem sort of helped, my connection to Hashem helped me with this, and nitchabarti im achoti, I joined together with my sister to merit children like she does. That is Menachem ben Saruk's understanding. Then Rashi says, Va'ani mefarsho loshon ikesh ufatalter. 
I think it comes from another occurrence of the same root in the Varim Perik Lamad Bet, uh, in the Song of Hazinu, referring to Ikesh Ufatalti, which means perverse, sorry, Ufataltor, perverse and crooked, crooked as in twisted. So it's nothing to do with connection, it's to do with twisted. Now, what does that mean in our context? It means nit akashti, which literally sort of I have become, well, you might think that means I have become perverse, which obviously doesn't mean that, but it means in terms of uh, her um, longings and presumably her prayers, although that's not explicit at this point, I have been persistent, the hivtsavati, and I beseeched, Petsirot with many beseeching, sorry, and much turning, like turning round and round to get the point across, to Hashem, to be equal to my sister. So it's an expression of davening, although he doesn't use that word. It's, I've tried in, again, it's very hard to explain this because it, it, we're really stretching the meaning. But the meaning, says Rashi, is twisted, and I have become um, very, I'm not sure how you get from twisted to persistent, but you do. I've become very persistent, and and I have beseeched with many beseechments and many turnings and twistings to, to Hashem to be equal to my sister. Um, now, then Rashi brings a third explanation. Well, first of all, no, sorry, Rashi says a little bit more. Gam Yocholti means hiskim al yadi. He agreed with my hands. So Yocholti, which means I was able, or sometimes it means I was successful, or even I was triumphant, says Rashi, here it means I, he agreed with my hands. And then we have the third explanation. So the first one is Menachem bin Surak's explanation that it means joining together. The second explanation is Rashi's that it means twisting, as in praying very hard to achieve the result. And then we have Unculus's explanation, which Rashi now quotes. And he says, For Unculus tirgeim loshon tefillah. Unculus explains it as an expression of tefillah. In other words, it's not an indirect meaning of tefillah like Rashi's, but it's a direct meaning of tefillah. The word naftulti, uh, um, uh, naftuli and niftalti means to pray. Um, in Devarim Perektet, Pasuk Yudchet, when Moshe describes his actions at the time of the, um, I think it's the spies, or it might be the eagle. Sorry, I haven't checked that. He says, Now, etnafal contains the idea of nafal falling, but falling in prayer. And that perhaps is Unculus's way in to say that naftuli means praying. Now, in some, word, in some texts, the next word is kamo, which means like, but it's probably the, the correct version of Rashi is kulamar, meaning that is to say. And then he translates um, the words, uh, sorry, he, he, he shows how Unculus is understanding the words. And the next few words also are a variant text in different editions. Um, I've got here, Naftule Elokim Nitpalti Bakashot Chavivot Lafanov. But some versions miss out the first, the tough in the first word, and they just have Nafule Elokim Nitpalti Bakashot Chavivot Lafanov. 
So Naftuli is, again, it, it's praying and it's falling. I fell to Hashem, Nitpalti, praying and falling together. Bakashot Chavivot, with requests which were dear, which were beloved, Lafanav. And then Nitkabalti, Peneerti Ka'achoti. That's the words of Unculus. Um, no, sorry, we'll look at Unculus in a minute. Um, this is still Rashi using the idea of Unculus. I was accepted and I was um, answered like my sister. What Unculus actually says is the following. For Omeret Rachel, Rachel said, Kabil Hashem Ba'uti. Hashem has accepted my... Now, Ba'uti is desire... Uh, it also means prayer and supplication. Uh, as we say in Kaddish, tit kabel soloton uva oton. Soloton is Aramaic for prayer. Uva oton is also Aramaic for a slightly different type of prayer. It's like a bigger picture. It's like a longer term vision. That's how it's often understood. And Rachel's wish for children was not an immediate prayer to like satisfy her immediate needs, but was a ba'u, was a longer term desire. For, for something which was much more fundamental and much more long-term. So actually, she, Unculus uses both words here. He says, the words of Rachel are understood as Kibel Hashem Be'uti, Be'it Chananoti, Be'tsiloti. Uh, Hashem has heard my requests, as in long-term, when I supplicated with my prayers, a short-term, Chamedat, which is now the word chameda again another girsa problem chamedat if that's what unculus says means i wanted but rashi might have a different word meaning chemdata with an aleph on the end which is why perhaps he puts into his explanation the word chavivot that my prayers were chavivot dear the beloved by hashem so again, Rashi probably puts that in as a translation of the word that he had in his Unculus text, which is not the word that we have in our Unculus text. Okay, so three explanations. And as I say, they're all a bit tricky because the words are very tricky. Um, we can ask, uh, before I get into what, uh, why we need two explanations or why we need three, um, it's worth saying the third one, it's unclear if Rashi is bringing it as a third option. Or if Rashi is doing what he sometimes does, which is just telling you what Unculus says. So sometimes Rashi does this. Rashi is assuming you've read the Chomish and you've read Unculus. And sometimes he uses Unculus as part of his own explanation. And from time to time, if Unculus goes in a different direction, he will say, oh, and by the way, Unculus understands it as this. And there is, uh, you, as a question, when he does that, is he offering you an alternative explanation? Is it like a Deva Acher? Or is he just telling you what Unculus has to say? Because you're interested, because you're reading Unculus as well as you're reading the Chumash. Um, for simplicity's sake, I'd like to say, we'll go with the second explanation, that he brings Unculus as, just out of interest, telling you what Unculus says. In which case, we're back to the first two explanations, the joining together or the twisting, as in, I twisted and turned in my prayers before Hashem. And, and perhaps the reason he doesn't like the first explanation is, uh, and again, you have to be quite precise and see what the problems are. Uh, Menachem Ibn Suruk says on the first part of the Pasuk, Vatoma Rachel, Naftuli Elohim. Um, Naftuli, according to him, means joinings. 
So there have been joinings, if you look at Rashi carefully, Chiburim me'et hamakom. Chiburim from Hashem. In other words, Hashem gave me the power to join together with whom? With my sister. Not joining together with Hashem. And that's why Rashi spells it out, or, or uh, Menachem Surak spells it out, Chiburim me'et hamakom. There were Chiburim, there were joinings that came from Hashem. Me'et hamakom. The problem is it doesn't say me'et hamakom in the Pasuk. It says naftule elokim. Um, and that perhaps is a problem with uh, the first explanation. There's also a problem with the first explanation is it doesn't um, lead to an explanation of the words gam yachalti. Rachel says, Naftuli elokim niftalti im achalti. And then she says, Vagam yachalti. And if she's talking about her connection to Hashem, you might think gam yachalti means I then triumphed over Hashem, which of course doesn't make any sense at all and can't be the case. But I was, I, I, I managed, I was succeeded. That fits much better with Rashi's second explanation, which Rashi calls his own, which he says it's a form, it's, a, it's an indirect saying, I prayed and my prayers were accepted, gam yochalti. Whereas if you look carefully, if you go through the first explanation, where it means I joined together with my sister, it's hard to understand what gam yochalti then means. Okay, that's, that's really all I think I'm able to say on this very confusing verse. Uh, that's, that's really to the extent that I understand it. Um, so I hope that that, that helps a bit. Um, a few things to mention. Um, by the way, it's worth pointing out that in Bamidbar, in Pasha Chukat, where we find the word Samid Patil, he explains it exactly like Menachem ben Suruk, as meaning a tight seal, a tight connection. The lid of the jar is tightly fixed. Which means he's not saying that Menachem's got the pshat in the word wrong. He means that in this particular context, that's not what it means. Um, the, the reason I'm saying that is because you might think he quotes Menachem in his Machberet, which is Menachem's dictionary. He's written a translation of Hebrew words. And Rashi goes on to disagree with it. But we can see from elsewhere that he doesn't think Menachem is wrong, but the word patil means a tight seal. He's wrong, according to Rashi, in applying that meaning in this case as well. Rashi says in this case, it looks like the same word, but it actually comes from a different source. And the other thing I wanted to point out is what does Rachel mean when she says, according to Rashi, I was davening, last words, lihiyot shava la'achoti, to be equal to my sister. Now, this is problematic because she's not equal to her sister in the sense that Leah has given birth four times herself. Rachel has given birth through a surrogate twice. So what does it mean? And Rashi precisely uses the word Shava la'ochoti, equal to my sister. So the answer is perhaps that Rachel is saying, number one, I've had children. Albeit, we're not talking about, we don't, we don't seem to worry about the indirect the surrogacy business. But she, she's had children. So she's now amongst the people who's had children, like Leah is. Or, or to look at it slightly more precisely, she might have had a fear that all the children were going to come to Leah. After all, from Leah, sorry. After all, Leah's been having child, 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 four children straight away. Rachel's had no children. So the fear was she would be childless. But now, albeit indirectly, she is not childless. She's had two children via Bilha. So she is now Shava la Ochoti. She's equal to her sister in the sense she is amongst the matriarchs who will be bearing children, 
although at the moment it's still indirectly. Okay, let's move on. Um, sorry, Rashi hadn't quite finished. The last words of Rashi, Neftalti nit tefilati. Neftalti means my prayer was accepted. Presumably this point is for continuing his explanation of Onkelos. Onkelos says it explicitly means prayer, not like Rashi in his second explanation who said it refers indirectly to prayer. And therefore, Niftalti is also of the same root, and it means my prayer was accepted. And finally, Rashi mentions Umidrash Agada Yesh Rabim Baloshan Notarikon. Notarikon um, is, I think it's a Greek word, um, the Gemara uses it occasionally, Rashi uses it occasionally to say it's, it's if you, um, we have a, a good English example, like an acronym, which uh, I'm going to share in a moment. Um, but the word is an acronym referring to other words. Notarikon is not, not just acronyms. It means like you've got a part of a word here and a part of a word here and you put the two parts together to make a third word and they refer to the original two. It's like an illusion. It's like a remez in Hebrew. Um, but it's it, perhaps a pun is a good way of saying it. It's a play on words uh, of some form or other. So he says there are many in the Midrash. And, and I think he says that because he senses that explanation one, two and three are all a little bit unsatisfactory. Um, there, you, in each explanation, as you see, and as my difficulty in explaining them was, it's really quite tough to fit all the words into a simple and straightforward meaning. In every case, we have to um, push and pull and squeeze the words to fit what we're trying to say that, that, that what, what we're trying to say of them. And therefore, Rashi says in the Midrash, there are other things as well. So, for instance, Nun, Pei, Taf, Lamud, Yud is the initial letters of Nit Kabbalah, Per, Tefilati, Lifnei, Hashem. The mouth of my prayer was accepted before Hashem. So in that case, it's a straightforward acronym. Nun, Pei, Taf, Lamad, Yud is short for Nit Kabbalah, Per, Tefilati, Lifnei, Hashem. And there are in the Midrash other um, treatments of the word like that, which all go to prove the point that we don't really know what the word means. And, and Rashi, I think, uh, adding to the fact we don't really know what the word means, says, I've given you three explanations. Look in the Midrash as well, and you'll find some Midrashic ones as well. Okay, let us move on. Pasuk Tet. Vatera Leia ki amda miledet. Leia saw that she had stopped from giving birth. Vatikach et zilpa shifchata. And she took Zilpa, her maidservant, v'titain ota liyakov liisha, and she gave her to Yaakov as a wife. So, first thing to say is, there's obviously a pattern here. Rachel takes her maidservant, Bilha, gives to Yaakov, has two children. Leah takes her maidservant, Zilpa, gives to Yaakov, we'll see in a minute, has two children. Um, there's clearly a sort of rhythm here. Although it's worth pointing out that we, Rachel had a very good reason and perhaps a better reason for giving Bilha to Yaakov because Rachel hadn't had any children. And if she couldn't have any children herself, she could at least, she thought, have children through a surrogacy. And also Rashi gave that long 
explanation of how Rachel got to that point because Yaakov quoted the example of Hagar whom Sarah brought into the marriage with Abraham and then Rachel said okay I'll do the equivalent. There is no introduction to um, Leah doing the same thing. Rashi doesn't explain, the Chumash doesn't explain why Leah wanted to do this and I say that because that might explain a comment of Rashi in a moment. And the next Pasuk says, Zilpah, the maidservant of Leah, bore to Yaakov a son. Says Rashi. Rashi, this comment of Rashi is what I think is a pretty classic Rashi. He's pointing out something is different from the usual paradigm. What's different in this case? So remember, we're going through the birth of 12 children, 12 sons. And in each case, there's something which doesn't appear in this case. So Rashi, being Rashi, notices that and says, what is different and why is it different? Says Rashi, In each of them, it says, now heraion we translate as pregnancy, but, but a better translation would be conception. Because in each one, the birth is preceded by the verb tahar, she conceived from which we get the word herion, which means pregnancy. So in every case but this one, the mother in question, Rachel or Leah or Bilha or Zilpa, conceived and then gave birth. In this case, it doesn't say she conceived. So how do we understand that? Does it mean she didn't conceive? Well, obviously that's not what it means. She obviously did conceive, so why doesn't it say it like it says with everyone else? So that's what Rashi's got to explain. With everyone it says herion, a conception except for Zilpa. Why? Because she was the youngest of all of them, of all of the Imahot, the Tinoket Bashanim, and she was a child in years, the Ain Harayon Nikar Ba, and her pregnancy or her conception was not recognized in her because she was very young. So, of course, she did conceive. We're not suggesting there was birth without conception. But the conception was not recognizable like it was in the other cases because she was young. Now, at this point, you might be wondering, how does that make sense? If a young girl gets pregnant, she probably, uh, her, the pregnancy shows probably more than in an older, maybe bigger woman. So, what does it mean a pregnancy wasn't recognized? So, there's a parish called the Afat Toar who says it cannot mean that the pregnancy bump wasn't seen because of course it would be. That's nothing to do with being young or old, but rather because she was young. Uh, so the Afet Torah understands Rashi's comment as saying she hadn't started menstruating. So when she became pregnant, she didn't know she was pregnant because she didn't know that she wasn't menstruating. And that's why, uh, so the first three months before the pregnancy shows, she didn't know she was pregnant. Nobody knew she was pregnant. After three months, then it showed, and then people did know. But the harayon, the moment of conception, the fact that a baby was conceived, was not known to her because she was so young. And I think this explanation is pretty good, A, because it makes sense, and B, actually, because I've just noticed how well it fits with the words. The ein harayon nikar ba. The conception was not recognized in her, literally in her, that 
what was going on inside her was not something that was recognizable as a pregnancy because she was so young and she hadn't started menstruating. Okay, so Rashi has explained that why it doesn't say the tahar in this case. What Rashi is now going to explain is why was Zilpa the youngest? Why should it be that Zilpa was the youngest? On what basis do we say that Zilpa was the youngest? Says Rashi, In order to trick Yaakov, Yilavan gave her, Natanah with a mapik, gave her Lelea to Leah. So Lavan deliberately gave the younger maidservant to the older sister. Continues Rashi, Shalo Yavin. So he, that's Yaakov, should not understand that they were bringing to him Leah when he got married and he thought he was marrying Rachel, was actually marrying Leah because he sees Leah heavily veiled coming towards him and Leah's maidservant is the younger of the two maidservants. So he thinks, aha, the younger maidservant goes with the younger sister. This must be Rachel. Continues Rashi, Shakach Minhag because the custom was to give the older maidservant to the older daughter and the younger maidservant to the younger daughter. So Rashi has, um, I suppose, done three things. Number one, he's explained that why there's something missing in the Pasuk. Number two, the answer to that is because Zilpah was very young. And then he's explained why Zilpah was very young. And number three, he's put the boot into Lavan, which um, he doesn't miss an opportunity to do so, because we are told over and over again in Rashi that Lavan was a trickster. Okay, let's move on. The next Pasuk has a Ktiv and Kri, a very, very subtle Ktiv and Kri, in that the... Um, sorry, I must just check which way round it is. I don't want to get that wrong. Yeah, the word Bagad, Bet, Gimel, Dalad, is written as one word in the Chumash. And it's read as two words, Ba, Gad. As I say, it's very subtle. There is a difference. A, a first-class Balkora will read those two, word, two phrases differently. And in reading it as two words, there will be a nanosecond of a gap between Ba and Gad, which will be a nanosecond longer because it's two separate words than if it had been one word with two syllables. Now, we have throughout the Chumash, this Ketiv and Kari. It's written one way, but written another, but read another. Occasionally, it's a whole word different. There's two examples in Parashat Kitavo where the, actually a different word is read as opposed to the one that's written. Normally, it's a, a Vav is, is written and not read, or a Yud is read and not written. Um, it's actually a very large example, a very large class of examples, which is so ubiquitous we don't actually notice it. The word he um, and the word who in the Torah are spelt the same way. He, which is normally spelt hey yud aleph, is written hey vav he uh, aleph, which is the same as who. Um, and uh, the Balkora has to know whether it's who or he, or usually it's worked out by the context. But in a sense, every example of he is um, 
not the way it's written. It's just so commonplace, we don't even consider it like that. But here we have a Ketiv and a Kari, which is very, very subtle. Because the difference between Bagad as one word and Bagad as two words is not the way I just uh, accentuated it, but is a, a very subtle difference. Now, Rashi, what I wanted to say, is very rarely comments on these Ketiv and Kari's, but here he does, well, eventually. Let's see. Okay, what's, what's happening in the Pasuk? For Tomer Leah, Leah said, and the way it's read is Ba Gad, Gad has come, whatever Gad is, the Tikra et Shemo Gad, and therefore she called his name Gad. Again, I added the word therefore, it's not there in the Hebrew, we learned there's only three occasions where it does say al Kain, but it means therefore in every time. So she said Ba Gad, Gad has come, and that's why she called his name Gad. Now, Rashi's got a basic problem, a very basic problem, which Rashi is addressing. What does the word Gad mean? Because it's not a very common word. As we will see, it's got at least two quite distinct meanings. So Rashi's going to tell you what they are. Says Rashi on the word Ba Gad, Ba Mazal Tov. Mazal Tov. This is an early example of the phrase Mazal Tov. What does Mazal Tov mean? Well, the truth is, when we say Mazel Tov, we get it wrong every time. We say Mazel Tov meaning congratulations. What does Mazel Tov actually mean? Anyone? Avi, are you about to unmute yourself? No? Okay. Really, it means good luck. So it's really what should be said before the event rather than congratulations after the event. Now, why does it mean good luck? Well, it's interesting, actually. I noticed in some translations of Rashi, here, it, Mazal is translated as luck. And in other translations of Rashi, Mazal is translated probably more correctly as a sign. Now, what does the word Mazal actually mean? It means a constellation. Look up in the sky and you'll see, see all the Kochavim, the stars, or Mazalot, and the constellations, which are the groups of stars. But, so what's Mazal Tov got to do with constellations? Because it's based on the idea of astrology, that the fault is in our stars, not in ourselves, that if you look in the stars, that's a sign of what's going to happen in the future. So, Mazal Tav means a good sign of the, the constellation should be signing something good for you in the future, or, uh, same word, slightly different nuance in, in translation, it means good luck, because the sign is a sign of luck. Either way, Leia is saying, with this child has come Gud, Good luck, a good sign, good fortune, something good. Rashi brings two examples of how we see that the word God means um, a good sign. One is not from the Chumash, but is from the Gemara, um, where the Gemara in Shabbos quotes a, um, an incantation. Um, you, uh, people say, God, sorry, Kamo, like, that's Rashi's words, God, Gadi, the Sanuk La. May this good sign show itself. God Gadi. May the God, the good sign, Gadi, be visible. The Sanuk La. And tired not. And it's an incantation to hope good things come about. So we see from the Gemara that God means good sign or good fortune. The Domelo and similar will find in the Pasuk in Yeshaya. Ha'orchim legad shulchan. They make for God a table, or they lay, they lay a table, they set a table. Now, 
Why does Rashi quote the Gemara before he quotes the Chumash, or sorry, the Tanakh? Because normally, and for good reason, if Rashi wants to prove what a word means, he quotes it from the Tanakh, because that's, that's, if you like, the repository of Hebrew words. What the Chazal use Hebrew words for is at least pseudo-Aramaic, and it's much later, so it's not quite such a good proof. But in this case, I think, I didn't actually see this anywhere, but I think the problem is the Pasuk is not very clear. It's, it's ambiguous, because um, they laid a table for God. Now, what is God? If you look at Rashi there on the Pasuk, he will say God is the name of an Avodah So it's actually referring, well, it is actually referring, you don't need Rashi there. If you look in the context, it's referring to people who lay the table for an idol. So you have to make a big jump to say that the name of the Avodah was God because they were praying to an idol of good fortune. Um, but it's sort of like a two-stage process that the, they prayed to an idol and the idol's name was God and God means good fortune. Whereas in the Gemara's example, which Rashi quoted and quoted first, it's more explicit. If you look at the Gemara, it's quite clear that they're talking about good fortune. Good fortune should come and be revealed and not stop. So it seems to me that's why Rashi quotes the Gemara before he quotes the Tanakh. Then he gives another explanation. Sorry, before that, why, why God meaning good fortune? Why this particular child is good fortune? Well, maybe, because as we said in the previous Pasuk, Zilpah has given birth very suddenly, unexpectedly, um, at such a young age, at the age when she's just become fertile, she gives birth. That's, that's good fortune. Um, it's good fortune that Leah is back in the game of childbearing, albeit indirectly, because she stopped. And it says that at the end of the last Peruk, to say she stopped and it says again that Leah saw that she had stopped so and now she started again so that's good fortune or we can say that Leah is speaking with Ruach HaKodesh and when it comes to the um, bracha that Yaakov gave to his children when he said about the Bnei Gad that they were giburim they were mighty um, and later on they are part of the two and a half tribes who settle outside of Eretz Israel on condition that they lead the fight for Eretz Yisrael. And God are the soldiers at the front of the line. Um, so, with prophetic vision, Leah senses that God is special because her God's descendants are going to be mighty warriors. So, three possible explanations of why she thinks the God, good fortune, has come. But Rashi is not satisfied with that explanation, and I think he, he senses that it's perhaps not the best explanation of the word God. It might fit the pshat of what Leah is saying, but from a Midrashic point of view, we can use perhaps a more direct use or translation of the word God, albeit with a Midrashic outcome. <coughs> what do I mean? Let's see. Devar acher, sorry, umidrash agada, shenolad mahul. The Midrash says he was born circumcised. There are a few people in Chumash about whom the Midrash says they were born circumcised. And we know that's special. We know it from this week's Sedra of Lechacha that it's a pagam, a blemish to be uncircumcised. That's what Hashem told Abraham. And as a mark of loyalty to Hashem, Abraham circumcised himself in his household. And that's what we do ever more with our baby boys. So to be born, mahul, to be born circumcised is a pretty good thing. It's special. Um, so the Midrash says he was born circumcised and God 
means, according to this second explanation, to cut. So the connection between Gad and circumcision is obvious. How do we know it means cut? Because, for instance, in Daniel, Perak Dalad, Pasigyod Aleph, as Rashi quotes here, Kamo Godu Ilana, cut down the tree. Nebuchadnezzar had a dream and he asked Daniel to explain it. And in the dream, a tree was being cut down, which was probably a metaphor for the end of his kingdom at some stage in the future. And then says Rashi, and I do not know why it's written as one word. There's a few places in Chumash where Rashi says, I don't know what this means. <coughs> in other words, it's a question that needs answering, but I don't have the answer. It's often said as, as Rashi's great modesty that he tells people he doesn't know the answer. Um, I think that's true. But I think also Rashi feels the need to say this is a problem. Rashi is, in a sense, listing problems. To almost every problem, he lists a solution. Sometimes he doesn't, and he has to tell you, but nevertheless, there's a problem. So I've gone a little bit forward, actually. So Rashi's brought two explanations. The second one he calls the Midrash. The first one he doesn't explicitly call Peshat, but by, extent, by, by uh, deduction, it is Peshat if the second one's the Midrash. But what's interesting, and I think this is one of the classic examples where the Pshat, the overall meaning is more straightforward and simple. The overall meaning of the Midrash is more, if you like, far-fetched, a little bit, we would say, Midrashic, to say that he was born circumcised. But the meaning of the word God fits better with the second explanation than the first. So the Mashma'ut, the actual meaning of the word, is more likely to be cut. But that doesn't give you the pshat interpretation of the verse because it makes more sense for Leah to be saying, bah, God, good fortune has come, than for the Torah to be saying or Leah to be saying he's been born circumcised. But in terms of the meaning of the word, it fits better with the second explanation, which is why Rashi brings it. And then Rashi makes this comment, I don't know why it's written in the Torah as one word. And then Rashi says, Devar another explanation, Lama nikrate teva achat bagad. Why is it written as one word bagad? Kamo, as in it, it's like bagadta be. You have betrayed me. Bagad is betrayal. Beged means clothes. Bagad means betrayal. I'm not sure if there's a connection, an etymological connection between the two, but bagadad is to betray. So you have betrayed me. Leah is saying to Yaakov, why is he, she saying you have betrayed me? el When you came to my maidservant, like a husband who betrayed the wife of his youth. The wife of his youth, or betrayed the wife of his youth, is a slight um, reworking of a pasuk in Malachi Perubet Pasuk Tetvav where you get the idea of betraying the wife of his youth. Not quite the same words, but the same sort of poetic idea. Few things to say here. Um, number one, how can Leah be saying, you have betrayed me? <coughs> Didn't Leah offer Yaakov um, Zilpa in the first place? And to which we can say, perhaps, um, it's a, and this is a little bit hard to say, you know, sometimes when your wife offers you things, don't take it. It's not what she wants you to do. And as we said earlier, there was no need for Yaakov to take Zilpah as, if you like, a replacement for Leah, a surrogate or a rival to Leah. 
um, because Leah had already had lots of children, four children, which as we know is going to be more than her fair share, 12 sons divided by four wives. So there was no need for her to give Zilpah to Yaakov. The best we can say, according to this line of thinking, is she sort of copied Rachel, but it's as if to say, as if Leah wanted Yaakov to say, no, 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 I don't need to take Zilpah, I'm very happy with you, thank you very much. But he didn't, he took Zilpah, for, with no reason for it. And, and again, I think perhaps this fits in with the contrast with the previous uh, example, where Rachel gives Bilhah to Yaakov, and there's the whole long Misa, the whole long story that Rashi brings to explain how that came about. And that is completely absent when Leah offers Zilpah to Yaakov, and he says, okay. And perhaps Leah is saying, you shouldn't have done that. But we can go a little bit further and reach a sort of different result. Um, there's a couple of things to notice. When Rashi says, alma nichtava teva achat, um, in that line, Rashi says, I don't know why it was written as one word. And then Devacher, another explanation, Lama teva achat. Why was it read as one word? Did you hear that? Rashi said, I don't know why it's written as one word. But then the answer is, I'll tell you why it is read as one word. The funny thing is, it isn't read as one word. It's read as two words. It's written as one word, as Rashi said in the, first, in the previous line. But it's not actually read as one word. It's read as two words. Um, it's also worth pointing. It's also funny that Rashi says, I don't know why. And then he says, here's why. Now, that's not the strongest of questions, because you could say that I don't know why is following on from the first two explanations he's given. It means Ba'gad, good luck has come, or Ba'gad, he's come already cut, i.e. circumcised. And that being the case, I don't know why it's written as one word. And then, but I'll tell you, as another explanation, it is written as one word because it means Ba'gad to betray. However, it, it, it's still a funny Lashon. I, I haven't checked every other example of Rashi. Um, but it just seems to me a little bit funny to say, I don't know why it's one word. Another explanation, this is why it's one word. And we also have that problem when he writes correctly, I don't know why it's written as one word. And then he says, I'll tell you why it's read as one word. And it isn't read as one word. And at this point, we fall on the explanation, which sounds a little bit of a cop-out, but is probably correct, that these last phrase from Acher is not part of the original Rashi. And if you look in the original manuscripts that we have, by the way, whenever I say that, I'm referring to an excellent book called Rashi Hasholem, um, which is superb. Um, and at the back of the Rashi Hasholem, it's got the um, text of the original, the three classic manuscripts of the, the original manuscripts that we have of Rashi. So it's quite easy to see. Does this text occur in any of the original three, the Alkabets, the Defus um, Rishon, sorry, the first printing and the Roman edition? And the answer is no. In each of those, the, this section beginning Devar Acher isn't there. So it actually would be a good way of resolving these uh, oddities about that expression um, and why Rashi is answering the question, which he said he's got no answer to, and why it says written and why it says read incorrectly, by saying this isn't actually the words of Rashi. Um, we do this occasionally. Um, I don't think it's Apicosus, I'm sure it's not Apicosus, to say that the text we have of Rashi has been amended along the, line, along the way, and sometimes it makes much more sense to say, with, with uh, original evidence, to say that these words that appear in Rashi, which we can't understand, are not actually original Rashi. Okay, next Pasuk. 
V'teilet Zilpah shifchat Leah ben Sheni Liyakov. And Zilpah, the maidservant of Leah, bore a second son to Yaakov. Again, no um, uh, harayon. Doesn't say she conceived. Presumably she's still young. She can't be that young. She's already had one child, so she must be a little bit older. But again, it doesn't say Fataher. And I noticed that Rashi doesn't say anything at this point. And then the next pasuk, Yud Gimel, says Vatomer Leah Ba'ashri. Leah said Ba'ashri from the word Asher, which is going to be the name of the child. I'll leave it untranslated for a moment. Ki Ishruni Banot because the daughters have ishruni, which is they've made me uh, in a case of asher, v'tikra et shemo asher, and she called his name asher. Now, I haven't translated asher because it's hard to translate. It might mean happy, it might mean praised, it might mean blessed. Ashre yoshvei as we say every day, twice a day, is sometimes translated as happy are those who sit in your house or blessed are those who sit in your house or praised are those who sit in your house. I think the word happy in English is uh, too trivial for what asher means. Asher is also related to um, a general sense of well-being. I I wanted to call one of my children Asher because I think it's a beautiful name, but I was worried it would be turned into Osher, which I'm not so keen on. Um, so we didn't use it. But Asher is a beautiful name. Leah used it to as an expression because she was Ba'ashri, in my good fortune or in my blessed or happy state. Ki ishruni banot, because the daughters, that's other women, have made me Asher. And then she called his name Asher. Now, interestingly, Rashi doesn't say anything at all. But it might be significant. I don't, I don't want to, like, be Rashi. But um, Rashi has commented about the, the numbers game. But there were 12 children for six or for four wives. So if Leah can count um, Gad and Asher as her children, she's hit six, which is halfway. So between her and her surrogate pregnancy through Zilpah, she's got half of all of Yaakov's sons. So she's Asher. So she's pretty content to have reached that number. Okay, um, I think we can do one more Pasuk and then I think we're going to stop. Um, it starts a new story because there's more children to be born and um, the next two were born as a result, well the next one and then there's another one, was born as a result of the Dudaim. What are the Dudaim? Well, we don't really know um, as we will see. The Pasuk says, this is Pasuk Yudalad, so we've, got to, we've stopped with the babies and the midwives, sorry, and the maidservants <clears throat> we now have a domestic scene. In fact, Rav Hirsch says, just imagine Rachel and Leah sitting out in the fields, chatting to each other like two sisters, and their children are playing around. That's how Rav Hirsch sees it. Um, and what happens is, Ruven went in the days of the wheat harvest. And he found Dudaim, some fruit or some plant called Dudaim. I notice Art Scroll doesn't translate it, it leaves it as Dudaim, and we will see perhaps why. So I will follow that example, and I won't translate it yet until Rashi does. And he found Dudaim Basadeh in the field. And he brought them to Leah, his mother. The Tome Rachel El Leah, and Rachel said to Leah, Tani na li mi 
the Neich. Give please to me from the Dudaim of your son. So that's the story. Uh, and that's as far as we're going to get in the narrative. We'll do Rashi now, but as far as we're going to get in the narrative. Next week we will see what Leah's, sorry, what Rachel's, Leah's response to Rachel is. Rachel says, I see that your son has got these fruits, these Dudaim, um, which obviously for you, because he's your son, but I'd like some as well. Can I have some? And we'll see how Leah responds. But let's see what Rashi says. Because Rashi talks about a phrase here, which um, I think quite obviously stands out as perhaps unnecessary. There's an unnecessary detail in this verse. Why do we need it? Now, of course, there's no such thing as an unnecessary detail. Rashi will tell us why it's necessary. But the apparently unnecessary detail is in the days of the wheat harvest. Says Rashi, why do we need to be told that? To tell us the praise of the tribes, tribes as in the sons of Yaakov. But they were good guys. It was the time of the harvest. And ya, sorry, Reuven did not stretch out his hand in robbery <coughs> to bring to his mother wheat or barley, which would have been easy because in the time of harvest, you've got all this wheat and barley hanging around the place. It's not hefka, it's not ownerless, it's very much ownered, but it's easy for people to take. And yet we see that Reuben didn't take it. It was Bashat Kutsir Chitim. When there's all this wheat around, and what did he get? Dudaim, which is, says Rashi, Ela Devar Hahefker, something ownerless. She'ein Adam Makpid Bo, that a person is not particular about it. Now, I've suggested Dudaim is fruits. It might not be. In fact, Rashi's going to say it's not. It might be just some sort of flower. Um, not F-L-O-U-R, which is made from the wheat, but F-L-O-W-E-R, something that just happens to be growing wild and is hefker, is ownerless, and nobody cares about it. That's what Yaprat Ruven brings to Leah, even though it was Bachar Ketzir Chetim, and the time of the wheat harvest. So Rashi is explaining why it says Bimei Ketzir Chetim. One little problem um, is that Rashi in the Gemara, this Pasuk is, is expounded in Sanhedrin Saditet, um, in a list of Pesukim, which you might wonder what, what they're there for. And Rashi there in the Gemara, the words we make it says, after the field has been harvested, when everyone is allowed to go into their neighbor's field. Um, in other words, Rashi in the Gemara is saying not that he took something other than wheat, but on the contrary, he went into somebody else's field because he's allowed to because it's after the harvest. Now, by the way, these two points are not mutually contradictory, they're not mutually exclusive. He could have gone into the field and took the Dudaim rather than the wheat. So they're not contradictory, but they are contradictory in the sense is what is the Pasuk coming to tell you? It's telling you about the righteousness of Reuven. Is it telling you the righteousness of the Reuven that he didn't take wheat? 
Or is it telling you that he waited till after the harvest when he's allowed to go into other people's fields and he wouldn't have gone at any other time? Now, there's, again, as usual, two approaches, at least, to this apparent contradiction between Rashi on the Chumash and Rashi in the Gemara. Again, Rashi on the Chumash says, um, <coughs> to stress that even though wheat was abundant, he didn't take any wheat. In the Gemara, he says, as to tell you that it was after the harvest um, and he went into the field which you're allowed to go into after harvest time. Just by the way, there's a little problem with the Rashi and the Gemara, um, which might be part of our story, but I'm not going to dwell on it, is Rashi actually seems to be avoiding the simple meaning of the words. means in the days of the wheat harvest. Rashi in the Gemara explains that as lachar after the field was harvested not quite the same as in the days of the harvest it sounds like after the harvest but that's for when we're learning the Gemara perhaps you can say that there are actually two parallel things going on in the verse there are two redundancies if you like one we've already talked about is why do we need to know what time of year it was there's another redundancy in the verse if you look carefully he found these dadaim in the field. Why do we need to know where he found them? Does it matter if he found them in the field or found them on the pavement? First of all, probably everywhere was field. In those days, there was nothing but field. Um, but So it's another reason why we can ask, why does the Torah tell us field? But in terms of the story, why is it relevant to know he found them in the field? So maybe there are two things that Rashi needs to explain. So he explains one of them in the Chumash and one of them in the Gemara. In the Gemara, he focuses on the word Basadeh. Now, it's true, his Dibra Matchil, his opening words, is Bimei but if you look at what he says in the Gemara, Everyone's allowed to enter into the field of their fellow. And that would explain why the Torah says that Reuben found them in the field. Don't think that he's not allowed to go in the field. He is allowed to go in the field because it's Bimei Katsirchitim. So Rashi and our Pasuk emphasizes and explains and Rashi in the Gemara emphasizes and explains the word Sadeh. An alternative approach is the one I gave earlier in a previous Pasuk and this is also said in the Gemara by the Mephoshim in the Gemara but it's not Rashi in the Gemara that it's somebody else. It's maybe one of the Balitosvas or one of the Roshonim. It's somebody else. It might be a Talmud of Rashi but it's not actually the words of Rashi. I don't know if we have any... Um, documentary evidence for that but it is suggested and that would explain why our Rashi which is the real Rashi on the Chumash says something different from the alleged Rashi in the Gemara if they're not the same person okay then what does Dudaim mean it means says Rashi Sigli okay what is Sigli Asev who it is a herb Ubaloshan Yashmeel in the Yashmiel, in the language of the Ishmaelite people, i.e. Arabic, it's Yasmin, which we know as Jasmine. So Rashi says it's Sigli, which he then says is in Arab Arabic is Jasmine. So Rashi's telling you what the word means. Slight problem again. We have another problem. Because if you look in the Gemara in Sanhedrin, the same place as we saw before. And if you look elsewhere in the Gemara, in Shabbat Nun, Shabbat, Perak Nun, uh, sorry, 
Daf Nun Amud Bet, um, we get different explanations. And, and he says Sigli is something else which is not Jasmine. So very quickly, um, again, how do we reconcile this? So the Ramban attacks Rashi and says it doesn't fit, and the Mizrahi defends Rashi and says, really, it's a mistake in the text. It shouldn't say Sigli, it should say something else, um, which doesn't really help because then we don't really have a source for that alternative. And then I'll just finally end on this for the third time tonight. Tonight, this time in the words of the Nachlat Yaakov, I will say there is a suggestion. It's not the words of Rashi. The last bit. The problem is the translation into Arabic. That's what contradicts what Rashi says in the Gemara. We can, we're happy with it meaning sigli. We just don't know what sigli means. But we are contesting the words which appear here as Rashi as in Arabic. That's Jasmine. Maybe that's not Rashi. So we're, not still in, we're still not entirely sure what it means. There's another translation that Rashi gives in the Gemara that some wants to say means violets. In other words, flowers. Um, it's not clear that Rashi's word actually does mean violets, but it's possible. But it's some type of pretty flower. And that is what Reuven brought to his mother Leah. And Rachel said, ooh, can I have some? And next week, in Yetz Hashem, we will see what Leah replied in response. So I'll say thank you very much. Uh, and uh, I said it might be short tonight, but it wasn't because there was lots of Torah to learn. So thank you for your attention. And in Yetz Hashem, we'll see you next week. Thank you, Rabbi. Thank you very much.